Live from the Battleborn Broadcast Center, it's Cofield and Company with Steve Cofield and Adam Candy, only on ESPN Las Vegas. Here we go, 5 o'clock hour, Battleborn Broadcast Center. Adam Candy is here. You heard that. It's Cofield, Angel, back in our Finley Toyota studios. It's Ari. Let's get into it. Battleborn Injury Lawyers presents the Big Five at Five, number five. Best audio of the last couple of weeks in the NHL. All right, I might be overhyping it, but the weirdest audio NHL official on the ice. His mic is up, and he's talking about handing out penalties. What? It wasn't much, but I wanted to get a penalty against Nashville early in the... And then the audio gets turned off. I'm sure whoever's controlling the audio is like, oh, what is he saying? I've got an open mic right now. Our in-house official, he really is an official, Adam Candy, brought it strong in hour number one. I want you to talk about this story. And listen, I understand refs have to manage a game, but it is disturbing when those of us fans hear that maybe there needs to be an evening out of calls is just a really bad look. Give me an explanation as to why the hell this guy is saying this. And by the way, the NHL didn't buy the explanation. He's gone. He has been fired. And let's add to the, the story of him being fired that this is an official who had had issues with the NHL in the past, who had once been suspended for being out uh, drinking with a writer the night before a game, who was going to retire at the end of the season. Like, the NHL gets credit for taking immediate action, but essentially what it did was it probably took credit for moving the guy out maybe three months before he was going to retire in the first place. So good on them for doing what they did. Look, like I told you earlier, Steve, I can tell you what was in that guy's mind. I absolutely can tell you what he was thinking. But you don't want to hear it, and you know what? You shouldn't have to hear it. Because when it comes to integrity, when it comes to fans being able to trust the product that they're watching, everything of the burden of proof is on the league and on the officials. That's it. That's all that should matter is that they feel like they're watching a fair competition. And when you hear that kind of comment of an official, whether he's talking about game management or not, that's it. That's it. You've given anyone who's ever had a conspiracy theory reason to believe their conspiracy theory is true and let me tell you as an official most of what's out there about what you think about referees is garbage most of what you think is a conspiracy theory but you know what when tim peel the official who was in this situation says on a microphone what he said then all those conspiracy theories get fuel and i think what he was saying if i know the way that officials think as well as I do after doing this, Steve, since I was 13 years old was the first time that I umpired a Little League baseball game. And I have been doing some form of this for the last years because I'm, you know, a little older now. But I remember many times where you're in a situation where, let's say in that first period, as they did, they call the penalty on Detroit. And maybe they'd missed one on Nashville. Maybe there's one that they went in the locker room and said, God, I can't believe we missed that. We should have called that. And they probably came out of the locker room saying to themselves, you know what? If Nashville commits a penalty, we can't miss it. We've got to get it if Nashville commits a penalty because we already missed one. Officials are self-aware. When they miss a call, they know they missed a call. But to say something like that, to make it sound like, well, I was looking for a penalty, that's above and beyond. That's something that no one should have to live with. The NHL made its move, and they made the right move. What sort of partnerships does the NHL have with sportsbooks? 
Yeah, I started to get into that a little bit with John Murray, but he clearly was not uh, interested in having that discussion. Uh, the NHL owns equity stakes in two different sports books. In fact, they just deepened oh, really? their ties with PointsBet. They just deepened their ties with one of them in PointsBet, and they are going to be able to profit from the success of wow. these sports books. So then, right? I, as, and as so, a fan, as a, Candy, as a fan, as a viewer, I immediately start thinking, "Hey, has the league called?" This Tim Peel, do they need a side? Does their book need a certain side? And while that may be ridiculous, like the chain that you'd have to go through to have officials, you know, making calls to benefit the NHL winning, its book winning, I think it's very unlikely. But if I'm, you know, if you're the average fan, hey, feel free to think that way. This is this is exactly why a couple of years ago we went crazy on the show over the integrity fee. And then when we started seeing in the NFL, Jerry Jones and Bobby Kraft buying in back end on DraftKings. And then you find out DraftKings and FanDuel are going to own books and that Jerry Jones actually could be a license holder in the future in the state of Texas. This is it may be good business for their bottom line, but it is terrible from an integrity and an optics standpoint. And they're the ones who were asking for an integrity fee as if they were going to police their own game. This is outrageous. You can react. I, that was as strong <laughs> as it was going to get. I mean, I I was waiting to hear number four, but well, now that I'm number four, my oh, other God, there my other, is my other question. My, man. my other question here is: as an official, when I hear this guy saying, you know, blanking uh, penalty here on a certain team, are they doing this so much that they're that comfortable talking about this with each other? The key word in that entire thing was early. In that whole thing, the biggest word you needed to hear was early. Because to me, what that tells me is there was a discussion they had in the locker room in which they talked about something they didn't like about the way that game was going. Whether they had missed a penalty, whether it was getting too physical, whatever it was. And the discussion was not go find a penalty to even this out. It wasn't a makeup call. It wasn't fake something on Nashville. It was nothing like that. The conversation... I would bet you major money. The conversation went way more to the end of, yeah, we need to get control of this game or we missed one on Nashville or something like that. But the fact that he is comfortable enough to be having that discussion with yep. other people within earshot of people who are not within that locker room conversation suggests to me that the NHL has been very clear in terms of handing down, here's how we want games to be officiated, right? And the officials on ice know the way that the NHL wants the game to be called. And so they feel like, yeah, it's a discussion that everyone can be a part of here. So you talk about not only the in, the relationship in between the sports books and the officials, but hey, we've got the situation here with Tim Donahue the referee from you know, 10, 15 years ago in the NBA who was betting on his own games, who's now out there as a freaking tout. I mean, come on. As, as, once Tim Donahue existed, then everyone had to live to a higher standard, and Tim Peel didn't live anywhere near that standard. Number four. We're still reacting to the hire of Kevin Kruger over at UNLV to run the basketball program. Desiree Reed francois was on Cofield and Company yesterday. We've been reviewing some of the interview throughout uh, this Wednesday program, and one of the things that caught a lot of attention was uh, DRF talking about how wide the search was, how many candidates were on the list before they decided to go with Kevin Kruger. Initially, we gave a list of 10, 
over. Um, and then we added a couple, an additional, I think it was uh, between like four and seven um, throughout the process. And then and the, some of those were recommendations from different people. And then, uh, and then those were vetted. Coach Fogler vetted them. We had other folks vetting them. And then we had interviews beginning, I think, about 10.30 on Thursday. TJ resigned about 6.30 in the morning. We told the team at 9. And then I had a couple of student-athlete conversations after that. And then we started interviewing at uh, about 10.30. Interviewed all day Thursday until about, uh, till about 10 that night. And then did addition, and then interviews with our president. We narrowed it down from a group of 10 to about six. Interview, and of that six, there were three minority coaches. This was a really diverse pool. Uh, we had three minority coaches, three Caucasian coaches, and then we narrowed it down again, um, had additional interviews. And then uh, we made the call on Sunday at, I think, about, about 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock-ish. All right, there you go. Uh, anything in there that uh, gave you pause, a red flag in DRF talking about the process and the size of the initial list? I wouldn't call it a red flag, but there are two things that jumped out at me in what she said. One that she did say and one that she didn't say. So the part that she did say was, I listened to that whole interview and you guys didn't ask her about the diversity of the pool. And I'm not saying you should have. If, if that question comes up, then that question comes up. We certainly, in terms of hires throughout college coaching and throughout the professional ranks as well, recently have heard a lot about were minority candidates, were people of color given the opportunity to have this job and do they operate on the same level as those who are white, who maybe come from a legacy like Kevin Kruger did, right? Kevin Kruger comes with a name and the nepotism thing is out there as a discussion, whether it's worthy of a discussion or not. So it almost seemed like Desiree Reed Francois was wanting to make that point wanting to be transparent about the fact that there were minority candidates in the pool and that there were an equal amount of minority candidates in the pool. Second thing, and I mentioned this earlier, but it's not getting enough run that the money is a factor in this whole thing. The money is a significant factor in this whole thing. And you need only to look at what Kevin Kruger is being paid compared to what TJ Otzelberger was going to be paid. TJ Otzelberger's contract topped out at one and a half million dollars at the end of the deal. Kevin Kruger at the end of this deal isn't going to be making more than 900000 If you want commitment, if you want a coach to stay, then you obviously prefer commitment at a level that over the course of the deal is going to save you a couple of million dollars. That being said, I don't think TJ Otzelberger was taking an extension at the terms that Kevin Kruger accepted it at. He certainly wasn't going to take a pay cut to continue to be here. So it seems like maybe more of an opportunity than an intent for UNLV to save some money on their next head basketball coach. Number three. We'll do it live. We'll do it live. Rolling live video right now. If you want to watch up on uh, YouTube or Twitter or Facebook, go check it out. Steve Cofield, Adam Candy, Cofield and Company, Big Five on a Wednesday. Kevin Kruger was on uh, the press box, and one of the good questions they had here was uh, thrown out there about the roster, but specifically – the guys who have committed to the program, it's important to land both of these guys and then add even more. Yeah, we talk, and we talk to everybody. Um, and we're going to just continue to have ongoing conversations and, uh, and just kind of see and make sure that we're all on the same page. Uh, at the end of the day, we want everybody to be happy. I think uh, for anybody to get where they want to get to, you know, you've got to feel good, be where you want to be, uh, be happy with, 
what you're asked to do and, and kind of be on the same page and the same plan going forward with the, the staff and the program. So uh, the conversations are going to be ongoing. We're, uh, you know, the, the people that I have reached out to and talked to that have done the, you know, can remember the first time coaching thing, uh, they just really, really keep going back to patience, patience and patience. Just there's no reason to jump at anything and, and do anything um, off a knee-jerk reaction. So uh, that's something that, you know, uh, with the, some decisions and, and some of this process, I really just take a deep breath, kind of figure it out from there. But, yeah, we're, we're just going to keep talking to guys. New UNLV coach Kevin Kruger talking at the beginning about Arthur Kaluma and uh, Gilbert, uh, who committed in that three-man class. Ian Collins is uh, out for obvious reasons. So, yeah, he said they've been talking to the two recruits from there. Uh, news in that Donovan Yap, a local, he was buried on the roster, didn't get a whole lot of playing time this past year, is entering the transfer portal. We'll see who else enters the portal. How many of these guys are worth keeping around, Candy? Are we talking six or seven, or, you know, they really, does the staff really turn over the roster? Can we get the obvious out of the way here first, Cofield? It is unbelievable how much that young man sounds like his father. Like, you could line up the two of them just on audio, and yep. you would not be able to tell whether it was Lon Kruger or Kevin Kruger doing the interview. That is remarkable. I mean, I know they look alike, but they sound alike, too. Okay, now that that's out of the way. Uh, the obvious answer here is if you're talking continuity, right, if what we're hearing is continuity and commitment, then you obviously, as an administration, are hoping that a lot of players come back. I personally think it, it starts and ends with Bryce Hamilton, right? If Bryce Hamilton comes back, it is a much different story for UNLV next year than if he doesn't. Um, if you believe that David Jenkins can fill the role that he filled last year, then I think David Jenkins is a useful piece on a winning Division One basketball roster. He is not, from what we saw last year, a guy you're going to rely on to be one of the two or three best players on the team. I think Caleb Grill had his moments. I think Moses Wood had his moments. Mbake Zhang is done, but if he wants to come back, he can. Um, and I think we saw some pretty nice play from Nick Blake. And I think Devin Tillis had had flashes as well. But if you're asking me the obvious guys that you have to bring back, you have to bring back Hamilton. You have to bring back Nick Blake. And I think there's a place for David Jenkins. Beyond that, I think you can make serious cases for and against everybody else. Number two. Marcus Mariota back in the fold. Well, he wasn't going anywhere, or he didn't go anywhere, but his salary's been knocked down to $3.5 million. Greg Bedard today, NFL Insider, reported an interesting note in the Mariota renegotiation as his salary's knocked down to $3.5 million. What did you notice that Bedard pointed out that's a little bit unique for a backup quarterback? Not a lot of backup quarterbacks getting no trade clauses, huh, Cofield? Uh, it seems like Marcus, Marcus Mariota now has total control over whether or not he gets traded, and it's been suggested that the reason he did that was to say, all right, if I'm taking less money, you're guaranteeing me that I'm spending the whole year here. And we heard earlier from legal insider slash investigative breaking news reporter Justin Watkins that Marcus Mariota was out on the golf course in front of him uh, not that long ago out there building a home in the uh, McDonald Highlands area. So maybe we knew more than uh, Mar maybe Marcus Mariota knew more than us right from the beginning. Number one. So we're getting uh, close to uh, most of the uh, free agent pool being signed. The Raiders can still do some more work. They need to get some more help in the defensive backfield. 
I know you saw the uh, most recent reset up on the athletic about the roster and draft needs. You notice that the uh, mock draft order for the Raiders goes like this offensive tackle, safety, defensive end, linebacker, running back, wide receiver, guard. Am I setting up this up correctly? There seem that seems to be a little bit off to me. What do you think? It wouldn't have been off to me, Steve, at the very beginning of free agency if you had told me that other other need areas had been addressed. Right. But seeing what the Raiders have done thus far, you have to look at that and say, okay, so first round, I understand you're saying you take a tackle. You didn't have to take a tackle before, but then you traded Trent Brown and you only kept one player on your offensive line. Yes, Virginia Incognito is now back. You, in some way, blew out four-fifths of your line, so now you're back to three-fifths. But you didn't have to do that prior to getting rid of Trent Brown. Maybe that was the plan all along. We'll give the Raiders that much. Um, if you're drafting a safety in the second round, where do you anticipate that person playing? Uh, do you anticipate that that person is going to be the starting free safety for this team? Because I don't envision that Jonathan Abram is moving from strong safety to free safety. Because I don't think the coverage instincts that we saw suggested that this is going to be the man over the top in the Raiders secondary. So I'm just wondering what a second round safety is going to do for them. Uh, defensive end, look, they need depth. I, I don't have any problem with that. But then we start getting into it and we notice it for what it isn't more than what it is, right, Cofield? Like, yeah. where's the defensive backfield otherwise? Where are the cornerbacks, right? Where are the cornerbacks on this team? Where is the depth behind Arnett and Trayvon Mullen who have been either injured or good enough to keep around and say, okay, let's get a longer look. There's nobody in there who's a sure thing. And how can this team go into next season without having shored up the areas that it told us. It told us as soon as the season ended, even before the season ended, when Paul Gunther was blown out by John Gruden, they told us before the season ended, we know the problem is the defense. So how did they respond to that so far in free agency? By creating more problems on offense and giving you one player on the defense who's an upgrade. It's the Big Five at Five, brought to you by Battleborn Injury Lawyers. If you've been injured, call Justin Watkins at Battleborn Injury Lawyers, 570-9000. In March Madness, one game, the best team does not always win. That being said, Greeny, mm -hmm. man, it's going to be tough to beat the Zags. They are terrific. After looking at tape the last couple months, I thought that the Zags and Baylor were the two best teams I have seen nothing to change my mind. Hanging at the Battleborn Broadcast Center, it's Cofield and Company. Charles Barkley on college basketball. What do we want from Charles? Do we want jokes and levity, or do we actually want some hardcore college basketball analysis? Because when I hear Charles say, and that was from CBS, when I hear Charles say that uh, he's seen nothing that has changed his mind about Baylor and Gonzaga, so you watch two games for each and you're good to go? I don't think Turner does Kenny Smith or Charles Barkley any favors whatsoever by no, putting them in the role of having to analyze college basketball. They're, they're, they're stuck in a bad position. I mean, I think Barkley over the weekend was the one who was unaware that seniors actually could come back because eligibility Correct. was not wasted. And then he went down the uh, anti-transfer portal thing, and it's like, Chuck, come on, dude. It's not their place. They shouldn't be asking them about it. It, you know, 
know your role and Turner needs to know their roles better than that. They're fine talking about the NBA inside the NBA's fantastic show, but come on. Let for Charles Barkley, let's keep him going to in the Annapolis instead of Indianapolis. I got a question for you on uh Trent Brown. What did we do here that made him feel scorned and unhappy? Uh today he was introed, I guess re-introed to the Patriots media. He said, I was happiest when I was here. I never had uh, more fun playing football in my life. Glad to be back. Mark Daniel says of the uh, pro Joe, Trent Brown says he was unhappy in Las Vegas and is thrilled to be back with the Patriots. Okay. I know they did stick him with a needle that didn't work out, but beyond that, he, he seemed to be in a, in a, a moody, moody. Moody, the entire time he was here. What do you think was happening? Go back to the time when Trent Brown was first signed, when he was given the largest deal in NFL history for a tackle. And we all looked at it and said, okay, well, yeah, the Raiders are going to slide Colton Miller over to the right and put Trent Brown at left tackle where he's made his career. And then he comes in, and I don't know if they had this conversation in the Gruden-Mayock-Brown camp, but... The first thing they did was move him over to the right side. And Trent Brown seemed like a guy who was not going to be happiest to get the bag because he got the bag, right? (laughs) He came and got the money in Vegas. That money's not going anywhere. That money is having fun, even if Trent Brown wasn't having fun. So I don't know. I I don't know. Should should we have been kinder, Steve? Should we here on Cofield and Company been done more to roll out the red carpet? Because he seems a lot happier back home with as much of that bag as he was able to take with him. I think we were very nice to him. I know Adam Hill was a big fan. He, uh, you know, uh, he was tight with Trent Brown. Uh, Nelson Aguilar talked to the media today. He said the picture is very clear when you join the Patriots. I think for me, what I've been through and understanding you have to sacrifice to grow as a player and play at a high level. I really embrace being part of this team. Raquan McMillan also gone from this team to the Patriots. He said just seeing them and seeing the prestige that came with being a Patriot and the track record of winning – and winning championships, that really did it for me. I just wanted to be part of that. So Raiders on their way to New England. They spoke today. All very happy to be with the Patriots. On the way back, we'll uh, bring in a national college basketball expert to continue setting you up for the Sweet 16. Visit Cofield's Corner on LVSportsNetwork.com for access to the latest podcasts and best interviews. Now, back to Cofield and Company, live from the Battleborn Broadcast Center on ESPN Las Vegas. Let's get some more reaction. It's Cofield and Adam Candy on the uh, NCAA tournament and where we are right now and what just happened. To get us to the Sweet 16, John Crispin calls games on ESPN, does talk radio for Sirius XM. He's a Pittman High School legend. He went to Penn State and UCLA. John is up with us here on Cofield and Company. How you doing? I'm good. I, you know, you, you're asking me to make sense of the unexplainable. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if maybe you should be calling somebody else because I would not have predicted what we're seeing in the NCAA tournament right now. Well, you know, it's funny. I... Um, I told the story a little earlier. I was listening to uh, SiriusXM, and, and Dockich was on, and Dockich really went in on the Big Ten for the kind of play. And he was saying there there are too many uh, egotistical coaches who want to yank kids off the floor because they make one defensive mistake. And he said, uh, you know, the game is now more about offense. you got to leave kids out there to work through their mistakes. Do you think that's why the Big Ten had such a tough time 
in these games because the goal essentially with Big Ten teams is not to score 78 points in a game. It's to keep the game in the 50s and the 60s. Yeah, now he's right. He's on to something there, but you still have to keep asking the question why. You know, you can't stop there and say, well, that's it. That's the absolute, right? This is basketball. There's no absolutes in the game of basketball, right? And that's what he's even talking about in terms of, of offense, where it's like, look, more free-flowing, more rhythm, let your talent win, figure it out on the fly. All those things, you're right. But why are Big Ten coaches like that? And what I think is the answer is ultimately that that's how you win in the Big Ten. Right. And quite frankly, that's how you win in the Big 12. You have to prepare for your opponents. So, so much of the, like, if you go back to John Wooden, uh, and I might dance around with some things, but I want to make sure I make the point. If you go back to John Wooden's days, he'll tell you, like, all he did was focus his game prep on his team and what they did. And he said, ultimately, if we play as well as I know we can play, no one will beat us. Well, that's not the world we're in right now. Like, that's not how it works. You have to over-prepare for your opponents. You have to know every single little thing that they do. And the problem is coaches tend to get too detail-oriented. Now, again, I'm, I agree with Dockage, but, but I want to take it a step further. Why are they that way? Well, they get so detail-oriented, they want to stop every action, right? If there's a down screen and a re-screen and that leads to a ball screen, they want to cut it off and they want to say, no, we're not going to let them do this. So a lot of your focus is on these specific detailed things of the game, yet it's not on the rhythm and flow and feel and counter and adjustment part of the game. It's on a how can we control this game, play it to our terms, and win enough in the Big Ten to make it to the NCAA tournament. Like That's what it really is. How do we win a Big Ten championship? Well, if you want to win a Big Ten championship, you look at Wisconsin and you say, man, Wisconsin's been able to do it. You know, they've figured out how to win a Big Ten championship. They're one of the most successful programs in the last 20 years in the Big Ten. So you look at that and say, all right, well, they're on to something. What are they doing? Well, they're controlling the game. They're making you play their game. The difference is you get to the NCAA tournament. It's not about playing your game. It's about playing your personnel. Like in the NCAA tournament, you don't see teams as well as you see teams that you play all year. So you're not as focused on the details. You're focused on the personnel, the tendencies of the personnel. And that's because the game at that level, the NCAA tournament, it's all about personnel. Players win. So you have to be, you have to create habits that allow your players to thrive. And I just think deep down inside what Dockage is talking to, what he's, what he's alluding to, is ultimately that the way you win in the Big Ten is different than the way you win in the NCAA tournament. And it's likely the reason why we haven't seen a champion since 2000. Mm. So I do think, again, on to something, but there are, there are more layers beneath that. I would say... And I'm going to say, I'm going to go on a limb on this. If Penn State this year, again, I played there, they're kind of a wild card. At times they could look great, at times they could be terrible. They're not built for the Big Ten. But I'd be willing to bet that Penn State has a better chance of still playing than half the other Big Ten teams that are gone. The way they play is more free-wielding, right? It's free-flowing. It's figure it out on the fly. And in the Big Ten, you're looked at and you're saying, wow, they're nuts, they're crazy. They're the mavericks of the Big Ten. Well, there's something to that when you get outside of conference, and we're seeing that in the tournament now. Yeah, I also think because, uh, you know, back to your point about, hey, they're trying to win the Big Ten. That's how your team is built. I also think the conference is way too into uh, gigantic fours and fives, and you get these variables <laughs> when you start playing in the in the NCAA tournament where there's a lot of teams around the country that are like, we don't have bigs like that. We have stretch yep. bigs. We're going to play one in, four out. Go ahead. Let's play the chess match. Let's see if your bigs can dominate enough making a bunch of twos. We're going to make threes. I'd say how many times I've heard a coach, and I'm not pointing at anybody specifically, but it's comical. 
I hear a coach say, "Yeah, we're playing. We're going to play positionless basketball." And I'm looking at I'm looking at him going, "Wait a second! You've got a seven footer who's a back to the basket guy who can't keep up with the pace and the tempo of the game, and you want to play positionless? Like, how are you playing a five out, none in offense? Or if anything, how are you posting up a guard when you have a guy who's seven foot four? Like, it, it doesn't really add up. And, and I do think the Big Ten's got a challenge because, and, and this is what it's going to take." It's going to take some crazy coach. I was kind of hoping it would be my brother at Penn State because he's nuts like that. He would do this. Who, whose goal is to score 100 points, but who's also willing to give up 100 points to get there. That's going to be what it takes. Someone who, who doesn't make any sense in the conference. Now, they'll win enough games. Maybe you finish sixth or seventh in the conference, but you're actually poised to make a run in the NCAA tournament because you know how to operate that way against a variety of competition against size, against physicality, against quick guards, against slow guards, against bigs, against a five-out, none-in type of offense. You figure it out on the fly, and then you're set up to make something happen in the NCAA tournament. Whereas Big Ten teams, they have to play the game they want to play. Otherwise, they lose. Is that why a coach like a Nate Oates, when he's looking to make the step up, goes from Buffalo to Alabama? Because Nate Oates is a coach who is a team that is defensively efficient, but there are going to be games where they give up 85-90. The problem is you're not going to be able to stop them from scoring 110. Look, it's defensively adequate. That's all you need. Like, mm-hmm. what did LMU do in the early 1990s, right? 90-91. You look at that team. What oh, yeah. did they do? They forced you to play their game by handing you fool's gold. They said, come run with us. Yeah, you can't do this for 40 minutes. Keep doing it. Oh, you scored 70 points at the half. You guys feel great about yourselves. Good luck scoring 140 because we are. Like, it's crazy. No one thinks that way. And, and again, you have to think about every layer of this. Why are coaches that way? Well, they like where they're at. Well, they're paid two and a half, three million dollars a year at a place that they like. So do you want to sacrifice or risk that? You know, it's, it's a risk reward type of thing. They're sitting there going, well, let me just finish in the top four of the conference. I'll make the NCAA tournament. Whatever happens, happens. But I'm keeping my job. I'm not going to be Richard Pitino. Who, who couldn't make an NCAA tournament and win an NCAA tournament game, and he's gone. They're not going to take those risks. They're, they're going to they're do what they know works. They're going to control the game as much as, as possible. And then you look at a Nate Oates, yeah, I, I would have I loved to, to see him come to the Big Ten and do this because I'm waiting for someone to prove that it can work, uh, prove that he's not crazy for doing that. Like, Iowa was close, but Iowa wasn't adequate defensively. They were deplorable. Like, that was the problem. You can score 85 points a game. But you have to hold your opponent to at least 80, or at best 84. And they, they couldn't do that. I had Oregon-Iowa for Westwood 1 at, at the NCAA tournament this past weekend, and that was their issue. They couldn't stop anybody. They could score. Luca Garza had 36 points. You could score all you want. The problem is if you can't stop anybody, the rhythm is in your opponent's favor. So you have to, be, you have to know when to let it go and then know when to lock down. And I think one of the teams that does this better than anybody else is Gonzaga. They coax you into playing their game. Pepperdine's up 10 at the half, BYU's up 12 at the half, and we're just sitting in studio shaking our heads going, just wait. They're going to turn it on because BYU's falling into the way they want to play the game. And what Gonzaga does is they say, we're better than you at playing our way. Go ahead and try to be better than us on this given night. And I think that's the coolest thing in the world. I wish basketball was played that way. I think kids would enjoy it more, fans would enjoy it more. The problem is we got things like Twitter and everything else that, that – People freak out anytime you lose a game. I just want to be inspired. You know, go play, have fun, inspire me in some way. Because a lot of times the basketball in the game is not very inspired. 
That's a great word for it. That's a, inspired is really a, a great word for what we'd like to see out of this game. Like I, I sign me up for Nate Oates, by the way. Sign yep. me up for what Alabama yep. does. Sign me up for any coach, whether it's Mark Few or Nate Oates or whoever is saying we're going to play our game and let's see if you can do it. Because you mentioned, you know, the the old Paul Westfall days, and yep. those are those are the same kind of teams. I totally understand that. So let me ask you a question about what you mentioned earlier. You talked about the. Sweet 16 being not exactly the Sweet 16 that any one of us would have expected. Um, am I an old guy if I say that it's because of the youth in the tournament now? That's That a lot of it has to do with the tournament is less predictable because we are dealing with so much younger players whose games are so much less developed where we don't necessarily know night in, night out what we're going to get from them. No, no doubt that's a part of it. It is absolutely a part of it uh, because especially this year, you know, you look at this year, teams didn't develop the way normal teams develop. And that starts in June, like last June, right? You get on campus, you start going to class. And what people don't realize is going to class is a part of the accountability tree, right? You, you start to hold guys accountable within that. You're establishing boundaries. You're also establishing pecking order through workouts where guys start to, you establish the different dynamics of the team. You didn't have that. So when you look at a Duke and a Kentucky, everyone's saying how great they're going to be. I was one of the lone guys, and I don't care I'm saying this. I was one of the few guys who's saying, I don't like them this year because they don't have a normal preseason. They don't have a normal non-conference. They don't know who each other is. How in the world are we supposed to know who they are? That's just the way I see it. So, so if that's the case, right now it's basically January, February at best for these teams. Inconsistency is usually what creeps in in January, February. So why should we expect anything different in the NCAA tournament? Oh, by the way, I always I also think when the Power Five teams get to the NCAA tournament, you look at the Big Ten, the Big Twelve, nine teams from the Big Ten, seven teams from the Big Twelve, seven out of the ten from the Big Twelve. Those teams gave up; they lost all their edge in conference play. So now you got to play a team like Ohio, who's just hungry, you know, who's fearless. And now North Texas is rolling up, you know, beating Purdue, and now now Oral Roberts, who has all the edge in the world, and oh, by the way, they also have experience. They have guys that know how to play. They have guys that are fearless, and they look at these freshmen and go, I'm not, I don't sweat that. I don't sweat that guy. We know how to play against that. And, and they have something to prove, whereas the, the Power 5 schools come in here going, wait a second, we can't lose. We're not supposed to lose. And, and that's not a good place to start. So I think it's a combination of a number of things. But the last one I want to point to, and this is one that drives me nuts when I listen to coaches talk about how hard it is to recruit, that is absolute BS. It's hard to recruit the top 15 kids in the country because you're competing with the best. But there is an abundance of talent out there, and the NCAA tournament is showing that. No one recruited Jason Preston from Ohio, yet he's one of the best players in the tournament field. I mean, how many, how many people looked at Acemas as an, an old banner from Oral Roberts? Not many. They're two of the best players in the tournament right now. There's a ton of talent out there. They just don't all look the same, and they don't all have the same small numbers next to their name. So we have to get away from this recruit talent that, that is a top 100 kid and start to recruit kids that fit what you do, fit who you are, fit the identity of the school, fit the culture of your community. There are so many things that we overlook that, that really weigh into the success or failure of an individual, the success or failure of a program, and so much of it is just simply narrative. I think at some point we got to get past that. John Crispin, college basketball analyst up on Cofield & Company. You know, uh, Bayheim annoys the crap out of me, but – he yep. does do what you just said. He recruits to he recruits to his team. He doesn't care if he's getting 
you know, all, you know, because that's the way he used to recruit. He doesn't need to get yep. the top 25 guys. It's guys who are going to fit his own and, you know, score efficiently. Are they going to come out of this bracket? I mean, the odds here in Vegas, it's kind of amazing. Houston, as a two seed, is barely a favorite over the other three teams. Can Syracuse do it? Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, Houston shouldn't be here. Rutgers gave him that game. Rutgers did everything down the stretch to give him that game. I caught a lot of Houston games this year in the American Free SPN, and I like Houston, but they are vulnerable. Man. They, don't, they don't score it very well. They rely on physicality, and they're not the bigger team. You know, they got by Rutgers by the skin of their teeth, and they get into the Syracuse game where they struggle to shoot. Uh, it could be a tough game. They're going to need the offensive rebound to win this basketball game, and that also means they're going to need officials to swallow the whistle from time to time because their physicality is what gives them an advantage. I think Syracuse is one of those teams there, when they lost Barama Sidibe early in the year, we didn't realize how much that shifted their defense. It changed the entire rotation of their defense, and at some point they just had to change what they did defensively. It wasn't the same defense. And so much of their offense comes from their defense, and so much of their defense comes from their offense, right? So they fix the defense first. You, you scramble to fix your rotations. Now you're better. You're actually attacking in transition. You can get into better action offensively. They're scoring the ball much better, which means what? They're able to set up their defense. It's a really simple process for the Syracuse team, but it's a process of adjustments throughout the course of the year when you lose your center inside, which is, which is the linchpin of that defense. So it's a major adjustment. They figured it out. They have big guards. And Buddy Beheim, I mean, if he's shooting like that, Guys like Joe Girard getting 10, 12 points, is gonna, it's going to come easy. So I actually think in this game, I think Syracuse, so long as they can rebound and manage the physicality, I would, I'd have them favored for sure. John, we got about a minute left, so this is a, kind of a loaded question, but see if you can do it. Uh, whos Who's going to make the run out of the Pac-12 from here? Who's the most dangerous team? Gosh, that's great. I mean, look, I think USC's playing the best. Um, I, I struggle to think like Oregon State is is going to continue to run, but I mean I I don't think I expected them to be here. Oregon may be if they can continue to do what they did with that smaller lineup. I think eventually you're going to run into a wall, and the wall may be USC because they have size, they have length, but they're they, they're athletic tall guys. They're not slow like Oregon was. It's not Luca Garza, right? It's it's a different lineup. So I think the length of USC will, will eliminate some of that you know, athleticism. The six foot six guys for Oregon—I mean, that was their tallest player on the floor, six foot six. LJ Figueroa took the tap. So I do—I think it'd be USC because they can match up against anybody. And what they did to Kansas was was just mind-boggling. No doubt. Uh, what else you got cooking? Anything you got to push out there? Uh, nothing really. I'm just—I'm winding down, man. I got an NIT game tomorrow night. I'm doing the NIT Final Four from Studio uh, for ESPN and and. I'm just going to be enjoy this like a fan. It's great. Very cool. John, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure, guys. Enjoy it. There he is, John Crispin, who's working for ESPN, Sirius XM, went to Penn State, finished up at uh, UCLA. We'll come back and, and finish up on uh, that whole point about Bayheim and what he does versus what a lot of the Big Ten coaches do where they're afraid to make changes and maybe the Big Ten isn't going to have a, a real national championship run unless they get more aggressive and Stop with the power basketball and the defensive basketball. Join the conversation on Twitter at ESPN Las Vegas. Cofield and Company presents Grab Bag, only on ESPN Las Vegas. Stick your hand in there, Dave. You know, I always thought it was curious, and you know, I understand you're trying to make sure on a football field that you're not going to get like cut block and your knee's going to get folded in half. But I always thought it was interesting that we've gotten to a point where most offensive linemen are all wearing the knee brace, right? They have the double knee brace on. 
Um, and I've just discovered today from trying to stand up the entire show. And I normally I do, but I'm not in stand up shape because we've been doing so many shows at home or on the road where there's seats. You know, uh, both Candy and Ari know this, that I stand in the studio all the time. But uh, I'm starting to find out when you weigh as much as an offensive lineman at 50 and you're only 5'9", your knees start to hurt. I'm really glad we worked in a comparison between you and a college athlete today. That seems to fit very well for us. Uh, you know, spring practice, spring practice getting started for UNLV. Spring practice getting started for Cofield too. So I get out there and slim down. You need to get Marcus Arroyo out. Have you out there with the offensive linemen running gassers and getting you in shape so you can stand through the show? Stick your hand in there, Dave. Uh, not going to happen anytime soon because today is National Cheesesteak Day. Uh, hands up. I assume it's two out of three actually eat cheesesteaks. And then there's another person on the show who will nitpick special order. And it just turns out to be steak in a little plastic or paper box without the bread, without the cheese, without any sauce, without any vegetables. Ari, go ahead. You're almost right. You're halfway right. My, my arm is up halfway. I will take all the fixings. Not really. I'll take steak and peppers and onions and no cheese. That's how I roll. A steak. Great, great cheesesteak. A Philly There's steak. So National Steak Day? Because like, I believe it was National Cheese Steak Day, and we seem to be missing a key element here. Call it the steak hoagie, whatever you want to call it. A Philly cheese steak. So we'll call oh, it oh wait a second. Hold day. on. Hold on. Wait a second. Are we are we getting into hoagie versus hero versus grinder? Are we no, doing this no, no, too, we're not. In addition uh, to National Cheese Day? You're already wrong on cheese. Don't start calling sandwiches whatever you want to call sandwiches, too. I'm, I'm just trying to translate it because no one can just fathom a cheese steak without cheese, so... There is a correct call answer. The answer is here, here is the answer, cheesesteak fans. Wizwit. That's it. All you got to say is Wizwit. Wizwit, and it's over. I feel like we beat up on Ari for the same topic over and over and over again. I will say his upbringing did not allow him to be layering cheese on meat and eating swine. Yeah, so. but I am really picky, though. It's, it's uh, warranted. I'm yes. okay with that. Stick your hand in there, Dave. Just don't ignore his text. Don't if he texts you about food, don't ignore it. Then you're in real trouble. You better answer, or you're on the list. Or on the list. Uh, We've now got two players apparently on the transfer portal or into it: Uh, Jalen Martinez and Donovan Yap from UNLV. And by the way, when I said two, there's like 700. So two from UNLV so far. As a roster assessment is being done, players are deciding if they want to stay or go. We'll have more on this tomorrow tonight, nine o'clock. We're back with our podcast. We're not blanking around here. That's the attitude all the time. We're doing a show. We're not screwing around here. Thanks to Battleborn Injury Lawyers. Call them.